Hi, I'm Dr. Robin Roth, but my friends call me the Booby Docs, my popular social media account where I talk about breast cancer and breast health in an educational and fun way. I'm a board-certified radiologist who specializes in breast imaging and image-guided procedures. I'm also a 40-something Ashkenazi Jewish woman with a strong family history of breast cancer and BRCA, so I know a thing or two about breast cancer. And this is my podcast, The Girlfriend's Guide to Breast Cancer, Breast Health, and Beyond. If you or someone you love has been affected by breast cancer, this podcast is for you. Each episode, I sit down with top breast cancer experts, thrivers, providers, and those that love them to bring you the breast information. So get ready to learn, laugh, and let's be breasties. This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please refer to your doctor with any symptoms or concerns you may be having. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hi, friends. It's your girl, Robin, coming back to you after a very prolonged sabbatical. We have a lot to catch up on, which I plan on doing in a future episode. To be honest, I really haven't felt like podcasting given the state of the world right now, but it felt very important to share this conversation that I recorded back in May 2023 with Lizzie Savetsky and her husband, Dr. Ira Savetsky. Dr. Ira Savetsky is a Manhattan-based plastic surgeon. Lizzie is a digital fashion influencer, matchmaker, mother of three, and one of the most outspoken advocates for Israel. We discuss the anti-Semitism that their family has been subjected to, particularly during their premature departure from the most recent reboot of The Real Housewives of New York and over prior conflicts in the Middle East. We recorded this conversation before the most recent war going on right now, but we've seen that anti-Semitism has spiked over 400%, so I felt that it was incredibly important to release this conversation now. There has been some controversy regarding their premature departure from the Real Housewives of New York, but that was not the focus of this conversation. We talk all about breast implants, complications, the rise in young breast cancer, and the increased risk of BRCA mutations in the Ashkenazi Jewish population. We also reveal our own plastic surgeries. Spoiler alert, Dr. Savetsky did Lizzie's breasts himself, finding balance in social media, and Lizzie's sobriety journey. I also give my best advice regarding breast cancer screening for those that are higher than average risk. I am also thrilled to be offering free cancer genetic screening for the first 25 people who register courtesy of Kick, BRCA, and JScreen. So to take advantage of this amazing deal for free cancer gen testing, which tests for over 60 cancer-causing genetic mutations, including BRCA1 and 2, you're going to go to jscreen.org and register for cancer gen with insurance, enter your insurance and physician information, and you're going to use code Kick Booby Docs at checkout. That's K I C K B O O B I E Docs, D O C S. Your kit will come in the mail in one to two weeks. You are welcome. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy and learn something from this conversation between myself and Lizzie Savetsky and Dr. Iris Savetsky. They are the first official couple that I'm having on the Booby Docs podcast. So I'm really honored that they're with me today. Oh, I think they're, I think they're coming in. Okay. I think we got it working. Welcome to the Booby Docs podcast. We're excited to be here. I feel like I'm a longtime listener, first time caller for both of you. (laughs) So Lizzie, I've been following you for over a decade now, back when you ran your blog, The Accessories Expert, and I really enjoyed watching your rise to stardom. So it was such an honor to introduce you a few weeks ago at the Jewish Federation Women of Impact event. And I think I mentioned this to you at the event, but we actually overlapped the same sleepaway camp, Bieber camp in Wisconsin. I was actually a counselor there, I think many, like a few years after you left. It's so wide. It's such a small world. I love geography. I love Jewish geography. And then later I saw that you married Iris Savetsky, who... 
I actually know Michael Savetsky from medical school. So, so funny. Found- we have so many points of interconnection. All right. So Lizzie, for my listeners who aren't familiar with you, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you came to be Lizzie Savetsky. So I grew up in Fort Worth, Texas, and um, was one of uh, only a few Jews there um, and uh, had a great upbringing, did all the typical Texas things, was a cheerleader, did passion, um, and then I made my way to New York to go to NYU for college, and I was a singer, so I was studying music there. I've always loved the spotlight. I've always loved performing. And then um, shortly after I work, I met this guy mm-hmm. at my 19th birthday party. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a crazy story. And it wasn't wasn't really the right time for us yet, but I, I thought he was such a nice guy. And um sorry. I don't know if that's offensive to say. I mean, you were a baby. You were 19. You had so much. I was like a child. Yeah. And then, um, and then I ended up, um, we ended up reconnecting a couple years later and it was, it was the right time and we really fell for each other. And I, I simultaneously was like on this religious journey. And I, um, so while I, like, I was sort of wrapping up, like, the singing and rock clubs thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and still loved the spotlight, but just like didn't really want to pursue that professionally. And um, so I moved to Israel for a year um, and did a lot of um, self discovery. And it was an amazing journey for me. And I still reap the benefits of that year. Mm-hmm. And then right when I got back from Israel, we got engaged mm-hmm. and ended up getting married about nine months later and I was in grad school in Philly and I was getting a master's in multicultural education and I just felt kind of creatively stifled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when we moved to New York, to Ira, I was already uh, starting to feel like I wanted to go in the fashion direction. I always loved fashion. And when we moved to New York for Ira to do residency, I um, started working in fashion and in my job in fashion PR, which I was there for six years. um, On the side, I started this blog called Accessories Expert, which is how you came to know me. And that was sort of just like this way of me being able to flex my writing muscles. I always loved to write. Um, I was always really into um, expressing myself in that way. Still am. And so and then social media. Uh, came to be in about 2012. I opened up my Instagram account and the rest is kind of history. You know, I just sort of have evolved and brought my followers on this journey with me as I've evolved. And thank God they've been willing to come along with me. And thank God he's been willing to come along on the ride with me because, you know, he's done a lot of content. But the first thing that I ever asked Ira, the first time I ever met him, I said, would you take a picture of me and my friends? Right. And it was a great photo. And so I knew that I was marrying my future Instagram husband. So. <laughs> he's a keeper. Oh my God. You need to teach my husband a thing or two because he's like always annoyed. And yeah, we, we got to work on it. That's a it's good very, yeah, It's so important. It's so important. It's so important. You have to explain to him about branding and I like why We're- it matters. We are not on the same page about branding yet, so we'll have yeah. to get there. He's my business partner. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm going to have a talk with him. after. Yeah. So a lot of the things that you mentioned resonated with me, which is like, you know, missing that writing, missing that creative process, like, and I like the blog, I like that was the original thing. Like that was the goal back in the day. I was a big blog reader. Uh, I like how it's kind of evolved to social media, like for better or for worse. Yeah, I, I wish people still read. Yeah. Um, how it's like, if you can't ingest it in 30 seconds, like it's over. Yeah. But you know, there's a time and a place for that. I'm a long poster. Like I'll have like a cute caption and like a yeah. thing. And then you got to, you know, line them in and sync them. Right. True. <laughs> yeah. True. Um, by the way, Philly connection. I lived, I went to, I met, I met my husband when I was living in Philly and I did my residency at Penn and he was at Cooper and now we're both in South Jersey. So this is like your old stomping ground. Oh yeah. So funny. Yeah. When I was in Cherry Hill with you, we used to do all our grocery shopping there. So it was. Yeah. Did you, did you go around Wegmans and enjoy the view? And Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, it was shop right then, right? Yeah, it was shop right. We would do a big shop like once a week every Sunday and we'd like load up the car with all our kosher because they had the whole kosher market in there. You're not going to believe this little piece of Jewish geography I'm going to drop on you. I live in the ShopRite Rabbit's house. Like, that's, that's who we bought insane. it. That is insane. It's crazy. Did they leave any snacks for you? Um, no, but we had the most beautiful kosher style kitchen. And like, that's really that. um, and we don't keep kosher, it. but it's like a fun fact. And on the side note is like, I'm a huge Bachelor fan and his son was on The Bachelor. So I was like, this house is the best. Wait, which one was it? It was, he was on, oh, whose season was it? It doesn't even I matter. Think I, know that. I think it was but, yeah. Hayden Rabbits. He came at like the chicken suit. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I want to talk a little bit about you, Ira. Tell me about your medical career and what you do now. So, um, you know, I always knew I was interested in, in pursuing surgery and actually for a long time thought I, I really wanted to do surgical oncology. Mm-hmm. And I had um, really put a lot of energy towards that path. So I spent in med school a summer at Sloan Kettering. Um, and then um, really like had my like vision on, on my path. Um, and then at some point I sort of realized that um as much as my passion drew me in that direction, I, I really felt like um, I sort of was going to have a better fit in uh, pursuing plastic surgery. And I was really very much intrigued by reconstructive surgery. So, you know, I went from trying to surgically remove cancer to sort of reconstructing um, patients after having cancer surgery. And, um, and I really enjoyed that aspect of, of our specialty. Um, and then, and then I started to explore, you know, aesthetics and got really interested in that. And that's the really cool thing about plastic surgery is that, um, you know, people obviously think plastic surgery, they automatically think about cosmetic surgery, which is what I do. Uh, but there's so many uh, layers to it. And, you know, most of our training is reconstructive surgery. And it's really head to toe. And we're like one of the last surgeons, really, that operate head to toe. So it's a really cool field. And it's, it's you know, constantly uh, evolving and advancing. I was at 
NYU where we did uh, two face transplants. So, you know, what was once science fiction is like, you know, reality. becoming more and more reality, which is cool. So he oh, comes home in a good mood every day. He loves what he does. That's the most important. Yeah. It's incredible how you found that path. Um, I mean, on the as I work with a lot of breast cancer patients and the reconstruction is so important, you don't realize how much of your identity are in your breasts. And when you lose that part of your body, you lose a part of your identity. And, you know, and we all have complicated relationships with our breasts, you know, throughout the years. And so I love, you know, I the, some of the reconstructions I see are so gorgeous. I can't even tell it's a, like a reconstructed breast. It's incredible. So. Yeah, I've seen like the tattooing of the nipples that looks so real. It's so crazy. Real. What do you do? Do you mostly do what's the majority of your practice and what do you what types of breast reconstruction do you do? So at this point now I, I'm just basically a hundred percent cosmetic surgery. So it's not that I don't do breast reconstruction, but you know, I will do um you know, I I will do it, um, but I'm not currently in any insurance plan so it becomes a little bit more uh, difficult um so like is reconstruction only considered if you get like a flap surgery or is it like if implants yeah no absolutely i mean implant based uh breast reconstruction is is, is a huge component of it. it's probably the majority of reconstruction that occurs today um you know, flap reconstruction where you're taking tissue from some one part of the body and transferring it to the breast, whether it be from the abdomen or from the back, you know, that's typically reserved for uh, patients who uh, are having, you know, radiation or they've had radiation where they, you need not only volume, but you're also bringing over healthy skin and, and, uh, and tissue. So, um, but yeah, I mean, most people that are undergoing reconstructive surgery or tend to be at large academic centers. So they they have their, you know, like you, they have their, um, you know, radiologists, they have their, you know, it's very multidisciplinary. So, you know, the plastic surgeon tends to be, you know, sort of looped into those, to those areas. So that's usually sort of the path for these patients. Right. What, what type, what are, what type of uh, surgeries are you doing predominantly? So I do mainly uh, facial aesthetic surgery, so uh, facelifts, eyelids, surgery. And, rhinoplasty. Uh, rhinoplasty is a big part of my practice. Um, I also do, I do a, a good amount of breast and body. It's sort of the bread and butter of our specialty. Uh, you know, I pursued additional fellowship training in uh, facial aesthetic surgery. So that's sort of my interest and what I gravitate towards the most. Did you know that he did my boobs? I was going to ask, I was going to ask because I would, I would assume you trust him and he's like, you think, yeah, what was that like? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I felt like it was something I wanted to do for myself Yeah. after having three children and breastfeeding. And, you know, I, like you said, our breasts are a huge part of our identity and I wanted to feel comfortable and go to my own skin. And I always say like, it's so unfair. We go through like the most miraculous event to have children and then we're like punished for it because our bodies don't look the same so I always calls like the mommy makeovers like restorative surgeries to just make you feel like you did yeah I mean it's just you know putting things back sort of where they were before you had kids so it's it, 
And if it looks a little better, that's okay too. I had three kids. I breastfed them. I feel like they're saggy balloons. Like I feel deflated as a person. And as like my breasts are deflated, I'm deflated. Like I feel like a lot of people feel that after they're done, you know, through this whirlwind of kids. I'm starting to think down. I was actually going to ask you because I, I haven't really talked about this, but I'm starting to think about reconstructive options. They told me that it would, I kind of need that implant to give it some. You have to have an implant to it up. I'm sorry. I'm not a plastic surgeon. No, yeah. You, you, <laughs> no, you, you definitely you don't. don't need an implant to help. It all, it, it all depends. Right. So, Take off your shirt. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're going to do a breast exam right here, right now. Yeah. <laughs> that kind of podcast. So, you know, it really depends on your goals. If yeah. your goal is to stay the same size, but just have a, like a perkier shape and a nicer shape, then you could just do a lift. If you're looking for um, to, to restore volume, yeah, well, you know, or or if you're deflated and you're not saggy, quote yeah. unquote, then then a, you know an implant would do the trick. But if you're droopy, then you need a lift, and then whether or not you add an implant is sort of personal preference. If you want to get more volume and things like that. We have concerns with implants, right? Like there's implants in the news a lot lately. So let's talk a little bit about implants. What are the issues with them? So I would, so, you know, there are, first of all, you have to be comfortable having a foreign body in your body. So, you know, there are some people who can't wrap their head around that and, you know, implants not going to be the right choice for you. Right. Uh, and there are other things we could do to, to, enhanced volume you could do fat transfers to the breast yeah i actually wanted to ask you about fat transfer because that is definitely something i'm considering to um, improve the breast fullness i don't think a breast implant is the right decision for me yeah there so there are options um there's pluses and minuses for fat versus implant it's it's always going to be hard to recreate the the shape um and sort of the consistency of an implant with fat so there's you know, there's downsides with them. Right. But with regards to an implant, you know, there are implant specific sort of um, issues um, that are just that are innate to just the idea of having an implant. So over time, the implant may move or, um, you know, it may shift um, or you more may form scar tissue around it where you have a capsular contracture. So those are like what I would say, like implant specific um issues right. and you know at some point once you get implants at some point you're gonna uh, you know have another surgery whether it be to just switch to your implants um go up in size down in size or add a lift at some point so if you're someone that cares about the aesthetics of your breasts and you get implants chances are you know you're 10, gonna want 10 15 years you're gonna want some type of touch-up so I wanted to also talk about the like very small but re real risk about, you know, malignancies. So the breast implant associated, what is it? Breast implant associated ALCL. ALCL, So, yeah. you know, that is, that's a real thing. And, you know, you have to tell patients about that. Um, it's, it's very rare, but I think it's underreported is what we've seen over the years. Right. Um, what it basically is, it's, it's a... It's a malignancy um, that is essentially, no one really knows the exact pathophysiology, but we know that the implant is some type of stimulus for this malignancy. Um, 
but it's been mainly associated with what we call textured implants. So the outside of the implant could be smooth or it could have like a texture to it, like like a, a rough sandpaper, let's say. Um, in the U.S., it's really less of an issue because we mainly, at this point, we're like pretty much smooth implant solely uh, users. I use only smooth implants. Mm-hmm. So the risk of ALCL goes down tremendously. It doesn't mean it's zero, but it's it goes down tremendously. And um, and that's why it's important to follow up with your doctors regular, regularly, and you always have to get regular imaging. Um, and uh, the things that we that sort of are synonymous with being concerned is if like one breast gets larger than the other breast, right. not from like a mass, but it's from fluid. Um, and that's when you have to investigate it further. Yes, definitely. And then, and then there was this recent new association with squamous cell carcinoma, right? With like smooth and textured. Yeah. Is that, that concerning? There's always something, you know, and, and you have to tell patients about it. Again, you have to be comfortable with, even though these are very rare, um, you know, you have to know that that's a risk. The good news is that these things as a whole are very treatable and really curative. So, you know, it's all about sort of, picking it up and then treating it appropriately. And it's essentially curative. If you, you know, there are, there are very few deaths around the world from it. And it's basically people that are like neglect, you know, something so obvious for most people, but um, you know, they're very, very treatable when it's dealt with appropriately. I think this is a great point to talk about you being your own best advocate. Like, you know, your body best. I always like to say, you know, your body breast and, you That's know, it's, a change, bring it to the attention of your doctor. You know, we usually would like to evaluate imaging, like you said, you know, obviously a clinical exam, but imaging is often very helpful. You know, implants, we look at, you know, you can get mammograms with implants, as you know. Um, and, you know, if, if you have a complaint, we always evaluate an ultrasound and we might also want to do an MRI if we're really concerned about something like we're usually seeing these patients present, like you said, with a fluid collection around their implant on imaging. Yeah. And if you have implants, um, you know, the, the, the guidelines, the recommendation is for you to get some regular interval MRIs. Um, it, it's changed recently. It used to be uh, every, um, um, it was four, it was four years after then I think every, every two, but it's changed. It's changed a little bit. Um, obviously once you're over, uh, 40 years old, you should be getting regular, uh, mammograms and, and regardless. Um, but you know, you need to basically be on top of your care, basically. Totally. Knowing all this, what, uh, what, what kind of implants did you get, Lizzie? <laughs> the people want to know. So she has, so she has smooth implants. So the yeah. outside, so they're basically everyone. I look at him because I have no idea. You know, yeah, it's, like, what model does she Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, you know, people, I'll say what, what people know. People know the gummy bear implant. Yeah. So the gummy bear implant is, it sounds like exactly what you think it looks like is that it's, it's a, not shaped like a pear, but it's a, pear. yeah, <laughs> it's basically the, the latest and greatest silicone uh, implant. So over the, the technology of how the silicone is bonded within itself has changed over the years and um, which has really helped make them look and feel as natural as possible, more so than saline. Um, so basically, yeah. So um, 
so she has a gummy bear implant um, and they're they're round and they're smooth smooth walled on the outside so that's pretty much i got um i wanted a, a more natural look so we did a low pro low yeah so she profile. yeah i mean basically she wasn't looking to be super big just sort of restore the volume that she lost over pregnancy and breastfeeding so um you know the most important thing is you don't want to put an implant wider than the chest dimensions and then based on the size you could determine sort of the profile of the implant how far they come out from the chest wall so yeah but he was so good he um he knew that i was going to be like the most annoying patient ever because he lives with me so he like brought in some options and like tried them on. And I do that for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. You're not that special as I'm sorry. Um, have you ever had any other plastic surgery, Lizzie? I haven't. No, I've done Botox and yeah. Um, filler and that sort of thing, but I've never done, <clears throat> I've never done anything else, but a lot of my followers will like accuse me of having got a nose job, but I never did. You're going to hear this first on the podcast, but I had a nose job back when I was you know, a teenager, like many Jewish kids. And um, yeah, I actually like sometimes I miss my old nose, but I like, I don't know. But it looks also, good. Thank you. Yeah, it looks super natural. <laughs> but they also convinced me into doing a little chin implant, which I don't know if that, do you always do that? So that's, you know, it's, it's funny you say that because, um, you know, when you look at the side of someone's face, you're always looking at the relationship between the nose and the chin. Yeah, you have a good, nice relationship. Thank and you. Do you like it? I love it. I like don't, you know, it's been so long. I forget I even have it. I don't even think my husband knows I have that. Like, That's so funny. Part of me. Yeah. You know? um, so it's one of those things where some people, if they, have, if they're, if they feel like they have a big, big nose, they're not necessarily noticing their chin as much. So if I see someone that has like a really small chin, I'll gently suggest it because yeah. i'm not trying to give you them, want them to be happy yeah i'm not trying to give them a, a complex but right. i will just explain to them and i'll do imaging to show them with and without it and, and whatever they decide yeah that's, I'm, that's my mom yeah. did. gently suggested that i get this too and she was right yeah <laughs> i mean i think it looks great thank you you want to look like yourself when you do totally. so i mean i didn't I didn't see you before. You know me beforehand. Real quick about fat grafting. What are the pros and cons in like 30 seconds or less? Fat grafting um, pro, it's natural and mm -hmm. you get liposuction out of it too. So you could, if you have a problem area or stubborn area you don't like, so you get that taken care of. And then you, you know, the fat is natural. It's soft and, and sort of all the good things. Mm -hmm. The downside is that, um, it's not as predictable. So some of that fat will go away. Um, it's hard to get that shape that most women are looking for. Um, I, I really like to use fat um, in conjunction with implants, actually. So some women, the way their pectoralis major muscle, the way it's sort of their anatomy, sometimes you can't get the implant as far medial to get that yeah, nice cleavage. And, you know, it's really... If you if you can't get that cleavage that some women really want, you could add fat to the to that area as well. So I like to use it to like enhance and shape. Um, but um, I, I you know I've done it for for like a breast augmentation as well. Yeah, you could go up about one cup size. It's hard to go more than one cup size in one setting. Do you um do you get so, fat where it calcifies? Like I'd imagine, right? 
So you you can get fibrosis. Fibrosis basically is um, basically if there's a portion of the fat that doesn't get integrated with your body, it could become hard and essentially it's essentially dead fat. Um, and it's not hard. It, it could be somewhat painful. Yeah. Sometimes your body will eventually eat it up and get rid of it. And other times it could just sit there and feel like a hard mat. And that could be very distressing for many people, as you can imagine. And then, you know, you're getting imaging, you're sometimes getting biopsy and you're sometimes getting surgery for something that's benign. I mean, I just say, because we see it a lot on, you know, mammograms, especially in the breast cancer patients who've had lumpectomy oh, yeah. and radiation. So it is something we see a lot. All right. So Which, a lot, a lot of, a lot of reconstructive fat grafting uh, is used tremendously in reconstructive, uh, you know, very, very popular because yeah. they'll keep coming back for more and more. Um, a lot of times their tissue may not be as sort of receptible, maybe due to radiation, their blood flow is not as great. So they may, I don't. I don't think there's data suggested, but there may be higher rates of fat necrosis in that patient population compared to just um, people that had radiation or something. I saw that you guys were at the five under 40 gala the other night. That's an incredible organization. Amazing. Yeah, it was it was so beautiful. I mean, it was this organization that supports women under the age of 40 who either have been diagnosed with breast cancer or have BRCA and um it was crazy. I ran into this girl who I used to work with in my fashion PR days. Mm -hmm. And, um, and she was a breast cancer survivor. And since the time that I've known her, she's younger than me. And she looked amazing. She had her boobies out and she looked gorgeous. She, you could tell she had like so much confidence and it's just, it really, um, you know, a lot of times I think when we think about cancer, we're not thinking about how it really affects um, the mental um, you know, when, when somebody's going through something physically, they feel like they're not themselves anymore. And so to see these women, they had so much gratitude for an organization that really supports them and feeling beautiful, which we should. So, um, they're an incredible organization. I wanted to throw out some numbers that are might, you know, people might find shocking. So, you know, everyone, breast cancer is more common as you get older and breast cancer in young women is rare, like by the numbers, but there are more than 250,000 women living in the United States that were diagnosed with breast cancer before the age of 40. So wow. it, uh, more than 12,000 women are diagnosed each year under the age of 40. Um, I see it every day in my practice. It is horrifying. They're getting younger and younger. Actually, since we recorded this podcast, a big article came out that did show that there was an increase in cancers in young people in general overall with the highest risk with the highest increase in breast cancer, particularly in 30 to 39 year old women, it's pretty alarming. So more on that to come. I do think that there is a gravitation towards younger women. There, there was a girl there who was 19. Oh, oh my 19. God. The Miranda McKeon? I can't remember her name. It's shocking. Um, and, the, you know, and we know that young women who get breast cancer have it more aggressive. They're diagnosed at a later stage because we're not usually screening that population. And often their symptoms are dismissed because we think it's rare. Um, they have a higher mortality rate, higher rate of metastasis and a higher rate of occurrence. So it is a problem. But, you know, we I'm glad we're talking about what is your recommendation for patients? Yeah. You know, that have a strong family history. How do you handle 
Yeah, that's actually a great question. And it's so important that people understand the recommendation of starting mammograms at age 40 every year, that applies to average risk women. So if you have a strong family history of breast cancer or other risk factors, which we're going to talk about, then you would want to start earlier. You know, family history is important, but also knowing the age at when someone was diagnosed with, with uh, cancer. So having a first degree relative with a premenopausal breast cancer is one of the highest risk factors that you could have. Um, certainly, if you start having multiple, that also raises some red flags that you might have, you know, maybe there's something going on. And those are the people that we need to identify and send to a genetic counselor. Those are the people that we would also want to start breast cancer screening at an earlier age. So a good rule of thumb is if you have a first degree relative who's been affected by breast cancer, you want to start breast cancer screening 10 years before their age of diagnosis. The caveat is not before age 25 for MRI and age 30 for mammography, okay? So let's say your mom was diagnosed with breast cancer at age 35, then you would start cancer screening 10 years earlier. So starting at age 25, you would start getting an annual MRI. And then once you turn 30, we would start adding an annual mammogram to that. And there's different protocols that you could do, but a lot of people will kind of do it every six months. So in January, they'll come in for a mammogram and six months later, then they would get an MRI. So having those important, having those conversations about your family history are so incredibly important. But it's also important to know that most people who are diagnosed with breast cancer have no known family history or genetic mutations. So don't let a lack of family history of breast cancer or, or known genetic mutation falsely reassure you that you are not at risk for breast cancer because everybody is at risk for breast cancer, right? Average risk is about 12%. Um, and there are certainly people that are at high risk for breast cancer. And that's really important to try to identify those people before they develop breast cancer. So high risk is considered over 20% by definition. Those are the people that we start screening as early as age 25 with an MRI and as early as age 30 with a mammogram. So one of the newer recommendations that came out recently was that all women, especially Black women, Ashkenazi Jewish women, should talk to their doctors about their breast cancer risk factors before the age of 30. So we can identify women that are high risk and would benefit from that earlier or supplemental screening. And so what that looks like is having a conversation with your provider. They're probably going to use something called the Tyrer-Cusick calculator. And this is something that you can Google online and do it yourself. It's T-Y-R-E-R-C-U-Z-I-C-K calculator. And basically, it's going to ask you questions about your family history. Do you have any family members that were diagnosed with breast cancer? What age? Most important being like first degree relatives that were diagnosed with breast cancer and other types of cancers. And also a known genetic mutation. And I bring this up because Ashkenazi Jewish people are 10 times more likely to carry a BRCA mutation. Um, so the rate in general public is one in 400. The rate in Ashkenazi Jewish people, men included, is one in 40. So it's pretty high. That's very high. Really high. So I've asked, I had a genetic counselor on before, and I asked, should all Ashkenazi Jewish people consider genetic screening? And she said, yes. Um, because the rate is so high, so many great organizations out there, but get J screened and share both of them. Yeah. We both of them. Yeah. They offer great, you know, uh, discounted or free, even genetic testing. Yeah, you just 
spit in the vial and then you send it in. Yeah. And actually, I'm so excited to partner with JScreen and KickBraca to offer free cancer genetic screening to the first 25 people who register using the code KickBoobyDocs. So that is very important for anyone listening. Amazing. One of the things that, that we did and, and a lot of, you know, Ashkenazi Jews in general is, is, you know, before getting married, get a panel of uh, various genetic testing. Now the panel is like, it's hundreds. When we did it, it was like, a few. it was it like, was like and... no, yeah, it was like 40, 50. Right. And I think, you know, I think they do the BRCA. Now I'm sure they do the BRCA with that panel. So they I remember I was like, don't... are you not going to marry Right. They don't actually do it in the reproductive testing because of the implications. Right. So if like you're just going in to find out if you have Tay-Sachs and then you find out you have BRCA when you were BRCA, when you were not even on your radar, like you weren't asking. Now you have to deal with the consequences of that. Like, do I have to get a mastectomy? Like I'm about to have a kid. So, no, it's a separate panel, but the gene panels for both the cancer screening and the reproductive screening have expanded. So if yours is even a few years old, then you should even reconsider getting repeat testing. So it is something that, to think about. And, you know, also, like, I think everyone should consider just genetic counseling, because really knowledge is power. Like if you know you have an increased risk for disease, you might do lifestyle modifications, choices that will lower your risk of developing cancer. Right. So we know that people that are, have BRCA have an increased risk for breast, ovarian, pancreatic, melanoma, prostate cancer. In, like I said, men included, uh, Beyonce's dad is BRCA2 positive. I didn't know Wow. Fascinating. Yeah. So and actually black women are more likely to carry the BRCA mutation as well, but are less likely to be offered genetic screening. Wow. That's yeah, fascinating. It is fascinating. That's important to be able, you know, everyone deserves access to the knowledge. Totally. I mean, breast cancer disparities are a real thing. Um, I have a whole episode about it because we know that, you know, minorities are less likely to be offered these types of screening, um, you know, that can lower the risk and preventative measures. Okay. But for average risk women, we want to start breast uh, mammograms at age 40 every year and you continue as long as you're in good health. Um, I don't know. Do you support that recommendation? What do you tell your patients, Dr. Smith? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know that a few years ago, there was like a lot of discussion about when that should occur. But, you know, there's no question that that screening uh, imaging saves lives. I mean, we, it's for any cancer, right? I mean, colonoscopies, you know, pap smears, you know, that's going to catch it early. So, um, you know, when you're talking about obviously from like a, a global uh, financial, that's something different. But I think, um, you know, for me, I I definitely recommend 40. But if I'm doing any breast procedure, whether it be implants or lift, and they're over 35, I just tell them to go get a baseline. He made me get one. So. I yeah. agree with that. I do agree that um, that if you're having a procedure, you definitely want to get screened because that's an opportunity to check the breast. And you'd be surprised how many times we see people that they they incidentally found cancer at at a lift, right? Something it's like right, that. Samantha from Sex in the City. She yes. Yeah. And you know, it's also as as you know, like we just kind of spoke about like Santa Cruz, you know, that, that can happen if with a breast reduction, yeah. less common with a breast lift. But you know, if you have that baseline mammogram. Or everything is okay, and then you feel something hard after surgery. You're you're not 
guessing is it cancer or is it scar tissue or is it fat necrosis? So you have that extra level of comfort. Right. Um, and like we talked about, like there's a subset of people that need to start earlier than that. But I also want, you know, the young people that are diagnosed with breast cancer, they find the lump themselves. So we know that 80% mm -hmm. of young women that are diagnosed with breast cancer find their breast cancer themselves, which is why I'm a proponent of the self-breast exam. I talk about this a lot. I think self-awareness, you know, is key. Know your body. Know your body. So switching topics completely, Lizzie, um, you know, social media is one of those things that a lot of people struggle to find balance. How do you find balance with your hundreds of thousands of followers? Learning balance with social media has definitely been a journey for me. Um, I think, you know, none of us really knew what we were doing when this whole thing started. It yeah. was like the Wild West and we were just kind of out there seeing what worked. And um, I, I realized actually, ironically for me, that um, only sharing a piece of my life felt very dishonest to me. And that I didn't like that feeling and I wanted to open up about real issues that were affecting me, whether it be pregnancy loss or anti-Semitism or whatever I was struggling with or my anxiety or my alcoholism. Um, it was important to me to share those things on my page as well to just feel um, true to myself. Like that was just what was right for me personally. Um, I have gone through some periods with um, receiving a lot of hate, um, specifically, there were a couple different specific times. One was during the uh, conflict in Gaza in May of 2021 when I was just getting, I decided to publicly stand with Israel and I was just getting destroyed every single day. Um, I knew that when I decided to post about Israel, that it would be a game changer for me, that I would lose followers, jobs, and friends even, um, but I did it anyway. Um, but I wasn't necessarily prepared for how that would impact my mental health, and it did. You know, I, I had to take a break for a little bit, um, and, you know, I think it's one thing to talk about anti-Semitism or anti-Zionism as a theoretical thing, but when you're actually on the receiving end of people telling you that they want to hurt you and hurt your family, it takes a huge toll on you. And um, that's one of the reasons, you know, why I'm really happy not to be doing The Real Housewives because frankly, it was a very toxic experience waking up every single day. You know, I had to delete Twitter from my phone. I was just getting so much, so much hate um, and it was really exhausting and I just felt like any time that I would go online and, you know, my friends would send me things that they were reading and I'm like, I don't want to see this. Like, I just need to stay, stay the course. <clears throat> um, but you know, I think, um, at the end of the day, social media is a double-edged sword and we have to be, you know, if you have a message, like you have a message and you are an activist for um, breast cancer awareness or, you know, women's health. And if you have that, um, you have to use social media in order to get your message out there. And so um, for me, it's allowed me to, to fulfill my, my purpose and my mission. And for that, you know, it's worth all the bad. And I've just had to work through the boundaries, but 
Um, you know, and my kids, I actually, I think it's important for them to learn the, the good of social media because we only hear about the bad when it comes to children. But, you know, I've seen how many hearts Stella has opened my oldest daughter by sharing her weekly Torah corner where she shares a message from the, the Torah portion. And, um, you know, for her to know that she's impacting people that she's never met is beautiful and you know i think as long as we have honest conversations about the bad um as well and about um about the importance of feeling incredibly grounded in yourself when you have all these voices out there um that just feel like they know you and can comment on your life um you know it's i think it's actually a great life lesson to learn and if social media is the way that we're going to learn it, then um, I see the beauty in that. I truly admire you so much for standing up what you believe in. You know, even if it's not popular, you know, it's true to you. And I think that's the most important. You know, certainly what you stand for is a lot more controversial than what I stand for. So I really applaud you and both of you for really standing up for a cause that you truly believe in. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about your departure from Real Housewives of New York. What was that backlash like and what kind of anti-Semitism were you guys facing? Yeah, um, I mean, it was just like, it became my everyday life. Like Ira will tell you, what was I like during that period? Oh, horrible. She was like in another world, um, like just a sh like a shell of yourself and um, you know, I think I think it's challenging in the the best of times, but I think it's really um, amplified in a situation where you take a stance that is deemed controversial in you know in the world, um, even though we obviously don't feel that. But um, you know, it's confusing for for people who are not um, well versed in the various areas. Um, so they, you know, we live in a society where people are quick to pass judgment. And people really believe that they're standing up for human rights when they stand up against Israel. And for that, you know, it's not their fault. It's the media's fault. It's people, it's big time celebrities with powerful voices who are spreading false propaganda. And, you know, these, everyone's just a consumer of information. And so and nobody, it's not their fault. And nobody, nobody reads anymore, right? Everyone just reads a headline and moves on. Watches a TikTok. So. Yeah, so, but it was, it was definitely, um, it was definitely just like, um, it's one of those things, you know, like growing up, I always wanted to be famous. Yeah. And um, just getting a little taste of what it was like to be just out there for the public to scrutinize. Um, you know, it's one thing if they're going to like talk about how they don't like my fashion or I don't even, I, how they don't, you know, approve of my exercise regimen or whatever it is. But when they start talking about, you know, thinking Israel doesn't have a right to exist or, um, you know, saying horrible anti-Semitic thing. I just got a horrible anti-Semitic comment 10 minutes ago, right before you know, it's like, as try as you may, you will never be white or, so, you know, you're just a Jew. I mean, I got to say, like, even when I posted something with you recently about an event we were doing together, I got anti-Semitic hate. And I was like, damn, this 
they're rough crowd. And like, this is just a drop in the bucket of what you deal with every single day. Yeah, it's yeah, it's crazy. Like the haters really are so invested that they will go to any lengths to make sure that they know that they hate us. So I mean, haters gonna hate, isn't that what they say? Yeah, but there is something kind of liberating about knowing that no matter what you do, people are gonna hate you because you're like, okay, well, I'm just gonna do what I want then. One of the things I really admire about you is your openness and talking about your alcoholism and getting sober. What was your breaking point and why did you decide to go public with it? I, d I actually didn't share anything about it until I, um, I think I had six months. I had 180 days when I went public with it. Um, I, my breaking point was um, I had struggled with um, addiction over the years, but it really like was very, very high functioning. Um, like always a straight A student, always excelling in whatever I did. Um, and I think that that's actually like a very dangerous place because I think the high functioning people are the people that um, could just, you know, not wake up one day. Um, because there are no real red flags to the outside world. You know, Ira lives with me, so he, he saw some of it, but he also didn't want to fight and didn't want conflict and he wasn't around a lot. And so he didn't want with the time we did have to like cause issues. And I always say like, I, I don't blame like my alcoholism on any person or any situation. Like, yes, I used alcohol to cope with times when he was always working and I was always alone with my kids. I used it to cope with stress or anxiety. Um, those situations didn't make me an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic because my cope, way of coping is to drink. Um, and once I start, I really can't stop. Um, and, you know, I had a few different moments when I felt like um, I um, just had no control over it anymore. What really happened was I wanted to stop and I couldn't. Um, and I, I had never failed at anything. So to, to want to quit something and to have this obsession and not be able to. And like, I was, I had turned into somebody that I didn't recognize, you know, I was lying, I was sneaking, I was, um, you know, I was trying to cover it up any way that I could because I was so ashamed. Um, and I also didn't want to let go of it because it was my best friend, you know, it had been my partner for so long and to have to say goodbye to it was like mourning the loss of a friend. I mean, I know that may not make sense to any somebody who's never struggled with addiction, but that's the best way that I can describe it. Um, and so I had like a few different like bottoms and whenever I've like told other people who struggled with addictions by bottoms, they like laugh at me. They're like, that's it. But for me in my life, it was like not okay. Like, like there were times when I just like wouldn't remember, I had like blacked out, wouldn't remember what had happened. Like, um, you know, like drinking around my kids. I never drank alone with my kids, but if I had kept drinking, I definitely would have blacked out probably alone with my kids because I just had no control over it. Um, <clears throat> and then the lowest point for me was I was live with the Israeli 
general, Israeli consulate general. I don't, how do you? In New York. Yeah, in New York. And um, I was so drunk that I asked Ira to like join me because I didn't know. I was so nervous, and I knew that I like was out of control. And so he did. And after it was over, he was like, "What's wrong with you?" Like it was like a lot. Like we were. It was just like this. Like we were. The two of us were sitting on the couch with my tripod. And I just remember him saying, "What? what's wrong with you? And I was like, oh my God. And I remember people like asked me, like, um, or people had alerted me that other people were talking about it, that I seemed messed up. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm gonna ruin my career because all I've ever wanted to do is like advocate and, and have these important conversations and like my alcoholism is getting in the way of that. And I wish I could say that like the next day I woke up and never drank again, but it took me a little time. And, you know, I always tell any, um, anyone who's thinking about quitting drinking, like, or any other substance, like be patient with your. I really appreciate your openness on this topic. And I know my listeners do too. I mean, myself as a type a perfectionist like you, I have also struggled with, you know, I've been addicted to different things in my life, whether it be behaviors or substances. Um, and I agree with you. Like, I think a high functioning addictive person can be a very dangerous place to be. A hundred percent. Yeah. And Ira would try to snap me into understanding. He's like, you know, you want to live a long, healthy life. Like this is going to impact your health. Like, you know, talking to me about cancer and things. And it didn't, it wouldn't have matter what he said, because like my addiction was so much stronger and like my need to escape was so much stronger. So how did you eventually get sober? Um, so I took myself to a 12 step program um, and really never looked back. You know, it's been, let's see, it's been um, 22 months, 22 months. Almost. Yeah. And I, um, I just fully committed myself to it. I was like, you know, what I've tried isn't working. So let me try something else. And, um, I'm very committed. Like I am very invested in my sobriety. It's my number one priority. It comes before everything. Um, I go to meetings. I have relationships with other addicts and alcoholics that I talk to every single day. Um, I read, and, um, yeah, you know, it's, um, it's a, it's a daily thing for me. Well, I think that's really inspiring and I just really appreciate you being so open about it. And I think this is just one of the things that I really respect and admire about you and what makes you such an awesome human being. And Ira, of course, being the supportive husband as always. Yeah. You know, it's funny though. He's, he's pretty private, but when I decided to share about it, he was like, I thought you were going to talk about that. And I think that's really good. Cause he, I just felt like if I had known that there was somebody out there like me, it would have helped me. And if I could help someone. What was it like for you, Ira, watching Lizzie struggle with addiction? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was definitely an area of conflict over the years. Um, I mean, I, I drink, but you know, not, not on a daily basis. Like I, I'll right. drink, you know, once a week or something, a little bit. Like I'm not, I'm not a. He's I'm never not, been a big I'm not drinker. A big drinker. Right. He's a normie. That's what we call him. <laughs> I had 
like mentioned it, you know, a handful of times over the years, um, but she was never receptive. Um, so, you know, it was something that, I, you know, we both knew it was an issue. It was kind of like the elephant in the room, but without ever directly addressing it. And, I, you know, it's not something that you could convince somebody to do. Uh, they have to sort of come to their own conclusion as to, you know, when they want to get help. I think it was painful for him to watch me, like, be so controlled by this thing. And, you know, he wanted to help, but, like, you could only help yourself, so. Well, I have enjoyed talking to you thoroughly. Before I let you go, I just want to ask you a few little quick questions as a little bit of a lightning round. So, would you ever be on TV again? Yes, we would. Would you? What was the question? Would you ever do TV again? Sure. The right, the right situation. All right, interesting. What was going to be your Real Housewives tagline? Oh, I wanted to say I put the sugar in Meshugana. Oh, I love that one for you. Who wears the pants in the family? Depends on the issue, but Lizzie. Okay, I literally could talk to you for hours, but I will let the both of you go. Thank you so much for coming on the Booby Docs podcast and being so open. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. And thank you for the work you're doing. It's amazing. And I think you're doing it in such a fun, relatable, you're taking something so heavy and you're making it like relatable, accessible, digestible. I just, like, I give you so much credit. You're making a huge difference. Thank you so much for saying that. That really means a lot. And the feeling is mutual. Thank you both so much for what you do to combat anti-Semitism and stand up for Israel. And I just love seeing you both all around. And again, my heart is breaking for everyone who's been affected by this war. I'm praying the hostages come home and just wishing you peace and comfort wherever you are. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed this conversation or learned something new, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and help spread the word. If you tell me you did, I'll give you a big virtual smoocheroo. And of course, make sure you follow me across all social media platforms at The Booby Docs for more of the breast information. And a huge thank you to my podcast producer, Christian Cuveta, an amazing medical student who also wrote and produced the music for this show. Take it away, Christian.